Hi, everyone, and welcome once again. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas, and this is your Midweek Bible Study 2023 Spring Edition. It's great to be with you once again. Thanks for taking time to join me today. It is Wednesday, March 22nd. Today we're going to study 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through chapter 2, verse 3, and we're going to talk about what it means to live a Christian lifestyle. In today's passage, Peter describes how Christians should live. We're going to learn that we have to mentally engage in setting all of our hope in God's future grace for us. We also need to choose to act as those who are God's own people and reject the evil desires that actually drive our actions. Friends, our choices matter. Our God placed a high value on all of our lives, paying for them with the very blood of Christ. So since God has made us able, we must now strive to earnestly give love to each other. We've got a lot of ground to cover today, but before we do, let's start together with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you for this amazing journey that we're about to go on today. Lord, I pray that you'll teach us what it means to live a Christian lifestyle, to be holy like you are holy. God, we love you so much, and we thank you for this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. All right, turn with me in your Bible or Bible app to 1 Peter chapter 1, starting with verse 13. So prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. And remember that the heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residents. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors, and it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began, but now in these last days he has been revealed for your sake. Through Christ you've come to trust in God, and you've placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth, so now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart, for you've been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. As the scriptures say, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever, and that word is the good news that was preached to you. Now let's see chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. So get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. Like newborn babies, you must crave spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you've had a taste of the Lord's kindness. All right, that's our scripture for today. So let's get to it. Back to verse 13. It says, So prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Christ Jesus is revealed to the world. Here's our first question. What does it mean to set or prepare our minds for something? If all that Peter's told us so far in this letter is true, that we as Christians will be resurrected as Christ was, that God guards us in our inheritance with him in eternity, and that our salvation is secure, 
then there's only one logical place to set our hope. That is, in God's grace to us at the future coming of Jesus, the moment in which all the longings of our hearts will be satisfied. Still, even for those of us who believe, it is difficult for us to keep our hope set on that day. In fact, we're told to make a deliberate choice to set our hope there. We need to do this on purpose instead of setting our hope on things that can't truly satisfy, such as money, pleasure, or prestige. Obeying this command takes mental work. So Peter writes that we should stay alert and, as he says, prepare our minds for action. We must take control of where our thoughts go and what our minds dwell on. If we don't fully engage in intentional hope setting, we'll be easily distracted by the false hope of satisfaction that the world continually offers us. Next, verse 14. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. The question is, who does Peter say that we as believers are to live as and why? Everyone who is in Christ, who is a believer, has a before and an after. There was a time before we trusted in Christ that we didn't know the truth. We didn't understand. We lived in ignorance of what was real and what mattered. And so we followed our own desires instead of God's desire for us. And our desires were evil to bring ourselves gratification and relief at any cost. Now that we're in Christ, in our after, if you will, Peter calls us obedient children, literally children of obedience. Something profound has changed in us. We've become heirs of God himself. We're built to obey our Father. It's not just what we should do, it's who we are. So Peter writes that we must live up to who we are. We've got to stop conforming to the pattern we followed before. That's not us any longer. We've got to follow this new pattern. Next, verse 15, it says, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. The question is, what does it mean that God is holy and that we should be holy in everything we do? God's holiness means he is completely separated from sin and evil. Holiness pervades his character. He is holy. He's the opposite of anything profane. What we might not realize is that we too are made to be holy and set apart from the rest of mankind. The emphasis seems to be that we must live up to what we already are. We won't achieve perfect sinless conduct on this side of eternity. However, we are made to be completely set apart from the world in our conduct right now. In Christ, we're holy. In Christ, we must live as holy people live. Our right choices won't save us. Peter's letter has made clear that salvation has already taken place and only by God's grace through faith in Christ. We're saved people. We are God's people. Now we must live like God's people. That is God's standard for us, my friends, and it should be our standard for ourselves, even with the understanding that we will fail along the way. Verse 16 reads, For the scriptures say, You must be holy because I am holy. Here's the question. Is being holy a new concept from God, or is it something he's always spoken of in scripture? Verse 16 finishes the thought begun in verse 15. Peter quotes a well-known command of God to his people Israel found in Leviticus 11, 44 and 45, Leviticus 19, verse 2, and Leviticus 20, verse 7. He does this to drive home a point, particularly to his Jewish readers, that God has always commanded his children to be holy. It's not a new idea. Verses 15 and 16 can seem really daunting at first. The command to be as holy as God seems like an impossible task. But God isn't giving us a hopeless requirement. It's really helpful to look at those passages I just mentioned that Peter's quoting 
to better understand what the word holy really means to God. For Israel, it was much about living differently from other nations around them. To be holy or set apart meant to refuse to eat certain foods or wear certain clothes. To be holy meant respecting your parents. To be holy meant to keep God's commands. God's desire for his people was still to be like him, and he is holy. That's still his desire. The difference between the holiness commanded in the Old Testament and what's here is found in what Peter has already written in this letter. That is, God has already made us holy in Christ. He has already set us apart and saved us. Now he calls us to make choices that reflect who we already are. In other words, Christians are called to change our conduct to fit our identity. As holy people, we shouldn't be okay with our sin. We shouldn't accept falling into the old patterns. We are to act as holy people act. Will we be perfectly sinless in our choices from life here forward? No. We still rely on God's grace and forgiveness. Is God's standard for us now that we would live in perfect holiness? Absolutely yes, without a doubt, even if we won't achieve it fully until we are with our Father in eternity. Verse 17 says, And remember that the Heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residents. The question is, this verse combines several key ideas. What do you think they are? First, Peter reminds us that this relationship we have with God by his grace and through our faith in Christ is a relationship between a child and a father. It's a relationship of open communication. He has called us and we call on him. This is a father who's already proven his love for us and right now actively shields us and the inheritance he's promised us in heaven. He's a good father. We're saved. We're secure. But this is not a father who smiles and nods approvingly at every choice we make. He judges our conduct impartially and individually. In other words, he judges our actions with absolute fairness and with complete understanding of each of us specifically. We really need to understand this carefully, folks. This is not a judgment about whether or not God will allow us into heaven or punish us with his wrath. Already in this letter, Peter has been clear that decision is made and done. Our Father has given his believing children credit for Jesus' perfectly righteous life and has allowed his son's death to pay the price for our sins. But our Father does judge. He judges our works. He pays attention to whether our actions are those of holy people set apart for his purposes or whether our choices continue to be driven by the evil desires we had when we lived in ignorance. Knowing this should really change the way we live. We should stop trying to convince ourselves and the world around us that we belong here. We should stop trying to fit in. We should embrace our status as foreigners, strangers, and people in exile. We should live like the Father we wait to be united with. And yes, we should live with some amount of healthy fear, not a terror of God's wrath or eternal punishment. That's clear. Instead, this is a fear of loving parental discipline and a solemn awareness that the God of the universe watches and expects us to make choices that bring him glory. Next up, verses 18 and 19. They read, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors, and it was not paid with mere gold or silver which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. The question is, what does it mean that God paid a ransom for us? The word ransom was used when someone paid money to buy back a slave's freedom. 
In Old Testament times, a person's debt could result in that person being sold as a slave. The next of kin could ransom the slave, in other words, buy his or her freedom, a transaction that involved money and or valuables of some kind. But silver and gold can do nothing to change anyone's spiritual condition. No amount of money can buy our salvation. It has to be done God's way, with the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. That God paid a ransom to save us means that he paid the price to set sinners free from slavery to sin. Christ paid the debt we owed for violating the righteous demands of the law. Christ purchased our freedom and it cost him his own life. Only the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross was an effective atonement for our sins. The Old Testament saints sacrificed lambs in order to atone for their sins, but New Testament believers have had their sins covered by the blood of the sinless Savior. Next, verse 20, it says, God chose him as your ransom long before the world began, but now in these last days he has been revealed for your sake. Here's the question. Was Christ's sacrifice for the world's sins an afterthought by God? And how has Christ been revealed to us today? The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was not improvised. God did not make it up in response to the unfolding events of history. Peter writes that Christ was known before the world was founded. As God, Jesus existed in eternity past as the one whose blood would cover the sins of all who receive salvation. Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, and return to the Father were always God's plan to save us. Always. Jesus was always the answer to the questions asked by the prophets and the angels investigating what the Holy Spirit's Old Testament prophecies were pointing to. Finally, in Peter's lifetime and those of his readers, the beginning of what Peter calls the last times, God revealed the mystery. He showed himself and his plan to the world by coming to earth as a baby, a man, God in flesh, the final sacrifice for sin. Why? For our sakes, beloved. God's great gift of mercy and the timing of that gift in human history demonstrates God's great love for us. Verse 21 is next. It says, Through Christ you've come to trust in God, and you've placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. The question is, through whom do believers come to trust in God, and why is that important? It is through Christ that we have become believers in God. Peter heard Jesus say the same himself in John 14, 6, and 7. Nobody comes to the Father except through the Son. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Many may say they believe in God, but only through trusting in Christ do they truly put their faith in the Father. God's plan didn't stop with the sacrifice of his only Son as the payment for sin. Peter says that God also raised Christ from the dead and gave him glory. Describing that glory given to Jesus by the Father, Paul wrote in Philippians 2, 9, that God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So our faith and hope are in God. And in the same way that God had a plan for Christ's life and death and resurrection and glory, he has a plan for our life, death, resurrection, and glory. We've got to trust the God who did all of that in and through Christ, that he'll do the same in and through us. Our hope is in exactly the right place. Next up, verses 22 and 23. They read, You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. So now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. For you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. The question is, in these verses, 
Peter gives two reasons for his readers that they should pursue an even deeper love with each other. What are those reasons? First, they had purified themselves from sin when they obeyed the truth of the gospel. From obedience springs love. Once a person has received forgiveness for sin and been reconciled with God, it is only natural for that same person to reach out to others in love and graciousness. Though at first such affection might seem natural, it takes a concerted effort to deepen that love, especially to those who don't return the warmth that we offer them. The second reason for deepening our love for one another is found in verse 23. Believers, by definition, have been born again. Of course, we're reminded of Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus when the Savior told his friend that in order to enter the kingdom of God, one must be born again. This new life didn't come from something that died. Instead, it comes from a living and enduring source, namely God's word. Our minds and our hearts, they're cleansed as we continue to expose ourselves to God's word. This creates the climate for loving our fellow Christians. And last two verses there in chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, they read, As the scriptures say, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And that word is the good news that was preached to you. The question is, what Old Testament prophet is Peter quoting in verse 24, and what is the point of the combined verses? Peter is quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, and he's reminding believers that everything in this life, possessions, accomplishments, even people, will eventually fade away and disappear. As the grass and flowers in the field bloom, they will eventually wither and fall. And so all of this life is transitory in nature. It will pass away. Only the word of the Lord will last forever. Peter's readers would face suffering and persecution, but that would only be temporary. The word of the Lord was the good news that had been preached to them, and that good news is good for eternity. Let's cross over now into chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, and let's look at the first three verses, 1, 2, and 3, starting with verse 1. So get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. The question is, as Peter noted previously in 1 Peter 1, 22, believers need to get rid of what? In this verse, Peter listed several types of sin to be removed from our lives. The sins Peter listed here fight against love and cause dissension among believers. The first two sins mentioned refer to general categories. They are evil, or some of your Bibles will say malicious behavior. This means doing evil despite the good that's been received, the desire to harm other people. Malice may be hidden behind good actions. And secondly, deceit. This means deliberately tricking or misleading by lying. Now, the last three sins refer to specific acts that flow out of evil behavior and deceit. They are hypocrisy. This means that people say one thing and do another. They're play acting. They're presenting good motives that mask selfish desires. Next is jealousy. This means desiring something possessed by someone else. This causes discontent and resentment as believers make unhealthy comparisons to one another. It also makes them unable to be thankful for the good that comes from others. And lastly, unkind speech. Another term that's used for this is backstabbing. You may have that in your Bible translation. This means destroying another person's good reputation by lies, gossip, rumor spreading, etc. And malice often manifests itself through unkind or backstabbing slanderous speech. Next, verse 2. It reads, like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. The question is, what does Peter say believers should crave? 
And what does it mean that we should grow into a full experience of salvation? Peter writes that we must now crave something other than our own selfish gratification. Notice that Christians are being commanded about what to want. We've been told what to crave because this appetite doesn't always come naturally to us. This pure spiritual milk is exactly what we need, the stuff that meets our deepest needs. In fact, we don't always long for it. Now, how do we develop this appetite? We must start drinking. You know, sometimes newborn infants will reject the very milk that they're crying for until they get a taste of it, and then they guzzle it like crazy. In Peter's metaphor here, all Christians are to crave this milk like newborns, even the mature believers. This isn't to be confused with Paul's separate metaphor of milk and meat in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1, 2, and 3. No Christian reaches the point on this side of eternity where spiritual growth is completed. So what is this pure spiritual milk we need to hunger for? The word pure simply means undiluted or uncontaminated. The word used to describe this milk in the original Greek is logikon, which means quite literally rational or reasonable. More importantly, it shares a root with the word logos, which means the word. So this command means we must learn to crave the undiluted word of God as newborns crave milk. By drinking this milk, taking in God's word, drawing close to Christ, believers will continue to grow in their salvation. And now our last verse for today. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, it reads, Cry out for this nourishment, now that you've had a taste of the Lord's kindness. The question is, is there an Old Testament psalm that Peter's referencing here, hint, hint, and if so, what is it? And what does Peter mean that we have had a taste of the Lord's kindness? The Old Testament scripture Peter is referencing here is Psalm 34, 8, which says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. How have we tasted that the Lord is good? We've received comfort and confidence knowing that God has caused us to be born again into a living hope. We've experienced joy in believing in him. And we've found great purpose in the ability to set ourselves aside and give genuine love to each other. Having tasted that the Lord is good should increase our appetite for him. It should make us even hungrier for the word of God. But don't be confused. Peter is not suggesting we taste the circumstances of the moment to see if the Lord is good. He's already written that his readers may be suffering greatly. In fact, we all suffer. We taste the goodness of the Lord in and through our suffering and in his promises that our suffering will end as we continue on and with him forever. Well, folks, this brings us to the end of our study today. And what an amazing journey it has been. Lots of scripture verses, lots of great topics. Here's a brief recap. We discussed Peter's bold challenge to live a holy life before God. And this involves being mentally alert, morally disciplined, and spiritually focused. And as we found, it's hard work, but well worth it both now and in the future. Next time, we're going to study 1 Peter, picking up in chapter 2, starting with verses 4 through 12, and what it means to be living stones. Thanks for joining me today. It's been a joy to be with you. I'll see you right back here again next time. Until then, please take care. God bless you and go in peace. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.